Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to your people. We pray, Lord, that you would speak now through your word, that you would open our hearts to receive from your word, that today we might learn of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this week we begin looking at the book of Daniel. I feel like a bit of a broken record because I seem to constantly be saying that what I'm preaching on happens to be one of my favorite books or passages, but Daniel is truly one of my favorite books in Scripture. It's got a little bit of everything. There's apocalyptic visions, there's dream interpretation, there's mysterious handwriting on a wall. And there's a band of faithful believers living in the land of a foreign conqueror. It can be appreciated for its seemingly simple stories or by diving deep into the profound theology of the book. And it is a book, if we are honest, that has been consistently misread and abused throughout the years. If you grew up going to church and spending time in Sunday school classes, chances are you heard a lot about Daniel in a lion's den. Perhaps you even sang the song, Dare to be a Daniel, encouraging us to be more like him. At the risk of offending all of you who love that song, sadly, it gets the message of this great book completely wrong. You see, the book and life of Daniel are not meant to point us to Daniel, but to the God whom Daniel served. And in learning of him, we learn how to live faithfully as an exile people ourselves. Our first chapter grounds this theme in the truth that God is king, making it plain that he is sovereign over even the mightiest of earthly powers. And the chapter leaves us considering the questions, who is it that I serve? Who do I belong to? Let's dive into Daniel chapter 1 together. You can follow along as always in the uh, uh, insert that's in your bulletin, or if you have a study book with you, you can pull that out. If you don't have one, I think we do have some at the table in the back there if you'd like to grab one. We begin where the book does, by setting the events of Daniel's life in context. Daniel begins by telling us that the people of Judah have been sent into exile by God through the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This, of course, would have been a shocking event for the people of Judah as they firmly believed that they were God's people, and so nothing like this could ever happen to them. They have the temple. They have God on their side. How could they be taken captive? Well, it happened because of the sin of the people. When God entered into a covenant with the Israelites, he told them that if they follow his way of living, if they keep his commandments, then life will go well for them. But if they ignore God's law, if they live however they please then eventually God would exile them from the land. This is spelled out explicitly in Deuteronomy 28. 
The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That is exactly what is happening at the beginning of Daniel 1. Now Israel's presenting sin was idolatry. They wanted to be like the other nations, and so they chased after the gods of other nations. And this behavior lasted for generations. After years of warning, God finally says, fine, have it your way. Go and live in the land of Babylon, away from my land and my presence. And because of this, the People are being dragged off to Babylon with a particular question in mind. They are wondering, are we still God's people? Or have we screwed this up so badly that God is finally done with us? wonder how many of us ask the same question when we're confronted with sin in our own lives. Is God done with me? This is crucial context for us to have in mind reading through Daniel because the situation that the exiles have placed themselves in only provides further temptation to sin. The problem of idolatry is only going to be compounded living in Babylon. How do we see this? Well, let's take a look at just what the king of Babylon is doing here. We read in verses 3 and 4 that the king has commanded that the best and the brightest of Judah be brought to him. They are to be trained in Babylonian culture, language, and religion, and we're told in verse 5 that their needs are to be supplied for by the king himself, eating and drinking the very stuff that he is given. Sounds like he's being a great guy, right? He's taking care of them. What could be better? I mean, if you're going to be in exile, why not be supplied for by the king, right? Well, what's going on here is a re-education program. It's meant to make the exiles completely dependent upon the king and to begin to see him as their source of life. The thinking goes that if you can train the intellectual and cultural elites to act as Babylonians, then the rest of the exiles will slowly but surely follow suit and assimilate into Babylonian society. It makes perfect sense. It's actually kind of a genius plan. If you believe that there is one person who supplies all your needs and your desires, you're at some point going to serve that person exclusively because it would be best for you. It's the king's goal to make the people abandon their old identity as God's people and become Nebuchadnezzar's people. Ian Duguid points out for us, the fundamental goal of this whole procedure was in one way or another to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and minds of these young men and to instill in them a sense of total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. That is exactly what idols do. They make us believe that they can supply for all that we need. And will give us the life we've always desired. 
And in making us believe that, they begin to control us. They begin to dominate our lives, taking hold of our thoughts and our actions, and slowly but surely, we are enslaved by them. And all along, what we're doing is worshiping them. Giving that idol, whatever it might be, all of our time, our treasures, our talents, making them the center of our lives. That is Nebuchadnezzar's goal with these exiles, to shift their allegiances to him. To say, well, we're not sure we're God's people anymore, so we better find someone else to give us what we need. We better fall in line with this king. After all, he seems like a powerful guy. He's just conquered a bunch of land. Why not forget our old God and become Babylonian? And idols continue to work the same way today. People constantly look to things other than God to supply for our highest and our best. Life will be perfect if you just get the new Ford pickup. (laughs) Life will be absolutely what you want it to be. So long as you have that cottage by the lake and that second cup of coffee looking out while the sun is rising, then life will be complete. In a sense, it's the purpose of all advertising. Trying to convince us that life will never be what it could be until we have that thing. Just as the exiles are, we begin to be conditioned by the idolatrous temptations we face. Whatever we think will give us the life we always wanted, that will be the thing we serve. Our life will be about serving and even worshiping that thing. Make no mistake, we all worship something. That's true whether it's an item like the cottage by the lake or a goal like an early and comfortable retirement. It could be a social good like striving towards tolerance for all people. And it most certainly can be a political ideology or a party, a helpful reminder in an election season. (laughs) For a long time, that was my God, assuming that if a certain party came to power, then all of our problems would be solved. (laughs) I don't need to say how that one worked out. (laughs) The fundamental question we have is, who do I serve? My own appetites and longings? A particular vision of the good life that is maybe more conditioned by society than the gospel. Daniel 1 teaches us that serving anything other than God, we are serving an idol that ultimately cannot deliver on what we truly need. It cannot satisfy the deeper longings that each and every one of us have because there is only one true king. And that throne belongs to God and him alone. And so just as the people were sent into physical exile for their their idolatry, so we today are sent into spiritual exile for ours by believing that anything or anyone other than Jesus can supply what we need. We put a barrier between ourselves and God as we look to created things rather than the creator of things. 
In the end, we end up looking a whole lot more like Babylonians than God's chosen people. We end up looking more Canadian than Christian. One of the big themes of the book of Daniel is living faithfully as an exile people. It's easy to see how this group is an exile people. That's fairly obvious, but scripture makes it plain that Christians are just that. The author of Hebrews says that we are strangers and exiles in this world, and it is because if we are Christian, we have a different citizenship altogether. For the Christians, our identity is not wrapped up in nationality or in race or in gender or any of the other things that we like to divide ourselves with. But it is as Paul tells us that we are in Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And since we have that citizenship, since the church has been set apart by God to be a holy people, to live and to look like Jesus, we are meant to look to the king of heaven for our highest and our best. It is that citizenship that is meant to shape our thoughts and actions. And that is why Daniel actually refuses the food and drink from the king. It is one of the ways he is living faithfully as an exile, by stating in a tangible way that God is his king and the source of what he needs, not Nebuchadnezzar. All right, it's not some great dieting plan, as certain books out there will tell you. It is a way that Daniel bears witness to how believers in God are meant to live our daily lives, serving God rather than things in this world. Now, that might mean some uncomfortable moments as what is popular in society falls out of step with what we believe. It might mean awkward conversations with family and friends. It will definitely mean facing the temptation to go along to get along. After all, Daniel could have eaten and, and drank what he was given, but to do so would be to betray his true king and to slip slowly into idolatry. Now, the question we might have at this point then is, how do we live as citizens of a different kingdom so that people actually see that we are citizens of a different kingdom? Well, I've heard plenty of suggestions on this. One I've heard recently is that Christians are actually supposed to separate themselves entirely from the rest of society. Things have gotten so bad that we should remove ourselves and bear witness from afar. Alternatively, Christians should go on the offensive. We need to take culture back. We need to get aggressive with our witness. Well, that's one of the ways I've seen Christians take on the culture as opposed to to the gospel, often looking more like secular society than citizens of the kingdom. When we don't run away, which is so tempting, I'll admit, we engage in a way that doesn't reflect Jesus at all. We attack those who disagree with us. We end up sounding more like a commentator on cable news than a witness of the gospel. Christians are not called to throw up our hands, nor are we called to engage in a way that denounces everything we see and be divisive in everything we do. Rather, we are meant to engage the challenges of our society in a way that pays honor to Jesus. 
and to genuinely seek the betterment of those around us, even those who disagree with us. We see that in the witness of Daniel and his friends. He didn't arrive in Babylon and say, you know what, life's going to be a whole lot better if we just set up shop just outside of town. We'll sit around and wait until the society changes itself. Now, he lived faithfully in the presence of the most powerful ruler of his time. And we're told that he served that king more ably than anyone else. Verses 19 and 20. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Meaning they served the king. They served in his court. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now think about this for a second. Daniel and his buddies served the king and they served him well, even though he was a pagan, even though he had conquered their people. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Some of us find it hard to pray for the leader of a political party we don't like, and here they are serving in the court of the guy that conquered them. I don't know about you all, but that would not have been my default position. I do not find it easy to serve those who disagree with me or pray for those who stand in opposition to what I believe. But Daniel serves this king not because he abandoned his God, but because of his God. He engages the society he lives in in a God-honoring way, which, by the way, is what God told them to do. You can read Jeremiah 29 sometime to learn more about that. We don't have time to dive into it right now. It's just as Christ taught his followers to do, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Perhaps then, rather than succumbing to the temptation to walk away or to be abrasive and perhaps even abusive with our witness, we could take a minute before we posted that comment on social media. We could slow down before we lash out at our young relative who decides to spout off about the election at Thanksgiving supper, of course, because that's where it always happens, right? Rather than asking, how can I correct that person? Perhaps like Daniel and like Jesus, we could ask, how can I serve that person? How can I point that person to Jesus? Engaging our culture in God-honoring ways can start with very simple things. If you're ever out for a walk, pray for people as they walk by you. Some people started looking nervous there. I'm not saying you've got to stop them and ask them if you can pray for them. Pray for them as they walk by if you're not comfortable doing the other, although you could do that. Pray for the schools in your neighborhood. Pray for the building you live in. Ask God to genuinely bless people. Over time, you might even pray for that person who's got the lawn sign of the wrong party on their house. Praying for other people changes the way we view them. It changes the way we interact with them. And God does a work in them and in us. 
In the daily practice of our faith, we are molded by the presence of our God to learn how to live faithfully as what we are, an exile people. Again, that's not likely to be our default position, so we need to be shaped in that, into that way of thinking. We need the sanctifying work of our God to do it. We're not going to find it in ourselves. And that happens in part through remembering who it is that truly provides for our highest and our best. We are to remember that God is our king. I love how this is brought out in our reading. In the passage, we have Nebuchadnezzar trying to give these young leaders food and drink to make him part of his kingdom. And yet we are shown over and over again, it is what God gives that has the greater impact. Rather than eating the finest of foods from the king, Daniel and his friends end up being better off by eating only vegetables and water because God gave them help. Verse 17 tells us that God granted Daniel and his friends knowledge and wisdom and that he gave Daniel the gift of being able to interpret dreams. Verse 9 tells us that God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the steward, which allowed for this whole food situation to play out. And we're told at the beginning of the reading that it was God himself who sent the people into exile, allowing the Babylonians to conquer Judah and set the stage for all of the events of the book of Daniel. All along, it is God at work, even through difficulty like the exile. It is God who provides for Daniel and his people. It is God who is faithful to Daniel giving him exactly what he needs so that Daniel can be faithful to God. Start to finish, it's all God's work. The presenting concern that the exiles had was whether or not they were still God's people. And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Even though they had sinned against him and were suffering the consequences of that sin, God was still working behind the scenes to see his people blessed and his will be done. After all, it was God working in and through Daniel that allowed for four of God's own people to become the closest advisors to the king of Babylon, to be in prime positions of influence. They were able to witness to the God of Israel, to the most powerful king of that time. And as as we'll see as we go through the book, that has an impact. None of that happens by chance. It happens because Daniel serves the sovereign Lord who does not abandon his people, even sinful people, but delivers them. And Christians should know this better than anyone. We know that God did not abandon us in our sin, but sent Christ to redeem us, reconciling us to the Father so that we might bear witness to Christ and make disciples of all nations. Back at the beginning of this sermon, we asked the question, how many of us feel like we're not sure God's our God when we sin, that he may have left us? He hasn't. If we repent of that sin, if we turn back To him, he is still our God, just as he was still the God of the people he sent into exile. Remember who you are. Remember who is your king. 
It's not always an easy thing to do, I know. One thing I do to remind myself is I keep a journal of moments in my life, of blessings that I've received. Maybe it's a, something someone said to me or a letter they wrote to me or just a moment in my life. And in difficult times where it's hard for me to see where God is or what he's doing, I go back to that journal. And I read again of how he has been active and present in my life over and over again. It's a reminder that I am his and he promised to never leave me nor forsake me. And that is tangible evidence of that. I encourage you all to do the same or something like it. Something to remind you, even in the hard times. You are God's. You are his people, if you believe in Christ. Daniel is an exciting book. It is filled with all kinds of wonderful stories, but ultimately, it is the story of a faithful God who teaches his people to be faithful as they live in exile. And start to finish, it happens because God is king over all. May he daily open our eyes to that truth and allow it to shape how we live out all of our days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. You do not leave us nor forsake us. You have been faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn how to live faithfully to you, that you would empower us to do so. We pray all this in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.